Hello everyone, my name is Ryan and you're listening to The Vegan Report. Today we are going to talk about animal rights and political activism. And I have with me a very special guest whose commitment I immensely respect, Liz White, the leader of the Animal Protection Party of Canada. Liz began her career as a registered nurse. She has spent over 30 years as a community activist and has worked on issues including advocating for the disadvantaged, animal protection, and Aboriginal land settlements. In 1987, Liz began working with the Toronto Humane Society, an experience that redefined her activism. She's a founding member of Animal Alliance of Canada and has remained with the organization for over 25 years. In 2005, Liz became the leader of the Animal Protection Party of Canada. Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let me start by saying this. I always thought that you cannot be an environmentalist who supports the animal industry. If you say you care for the environment, my question for you is, are you vegan? Well, I'm realizing more and more that this logic applies to other areas of society. For example, in episode 9 of the show, I had a great conversation on veganism and Catholicism, and that made me realize that it would be hard for me to take seriously a religious leader who ignores one of the most reprehensible moral and ethical abuse of our time. Which brings us to politics. If you care about our democratic institutions, then you should not be supporting an industry that spends millions and millions of dollars on a global operation to undermine our democratic process. And I'm thinking about the lobbying campaigns through which this industry captures our representatives to implement unconstitutional policies like the AGAC laws, or to make sure the government keeps subsidizing them with our money, protecting them against the winds of the market. Or I'm thinking also about this industry and how it weaponized forces like the FBI in the US against vegan activists. Uh, William, the founder of Animal Partisan, um, told us about this in episode 5 of the show, or captured our public health institutions to make us believe that dairy and meat is required for our good health. In episode 4, Catherine told us about how Vietnam has fallen to this industry's lies on health through international development policies. And the list goes on and on and on. So my first question for you, Liz, is is this an accurate depiction of what is happening on the political front? Did I miss something? No, I don't really think you've missed anything. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, When you look at the whole situation from a moral, ethical, um, and political perspective, Um, and know what we're facing with uh, global warming. It is absolutely true that unless we deal with animal agriculture as part of the solution to global warming, we will never reach our targets because animal agriculture contributes to at least a quarter of the emissions into the air that causes all the wildfires and flooding and all that sort of stuff. So it's really important that we get governments to look at it, if not from the animal welfare point of view, which I think they should do, 
but certainly from an environmental point of view and for um, bringing the planet back to a livable place for people who are coming after us. And I would argue, importantly, for the animals that are come, going to come after us that are going to be equally uh, impacted by what we're doing to the planet. Um, with regard to the um, industry, it's got a very heavy lobby at the federal level and and at the provincial levels all across Canada, and <clears throat> as a result have acquired substantial subsidies to allow them to market their products more widely. Um, and because of the demand, we have systems that inherently are cruel to the beings that we ultimately, some people ultimately put on their plate. So, um, it's a it's a big it's a big Titanic to turn around. It's a very very big ship because people are pretty um, bent in their ways to actually eat meat and and leather and all that sort of stuff. So um, so I think we have a big job. But until we until we actually uh, deliver the political part of it, because that's where the the politicians make the decision, um, we're not going to see the change that we need. When I hear words like subsidy, um, it, it just, I, I feel, I have a feeling of boredom and I'm thinking, oh, this is something about economics. I don't really get it. But can you explain why it's important to understand what's happening on that front? Um, the most common thing that people say to me when I talk about the political party is they hate politics. They don't like politicians. They don't trust them. They don't want to have anything to do with them. They're going to turn their back on democracy and walk away. And I say to them, that is a, a huge mistake. Because like it or not, if we really want things to change for animals in Canada, we have to do the politics. And it's the politicians. They're the gatekeepers of all the legislation. They decide who lives, who dies, when they die, in what manner, is it cruel, how they're sold, what's done with them. All of that is political. And until we address that, there is no way that we are going to change the landscape with regard to how we treat animals, particularly food animals, which of course accounts for the largest number. <clears throat> well, let's take maybe a few step backs before getting into the heart of this issue. I'm curious about your own journey. So when and why did you decide to become vegan? And most importantly, why did you decide to take the extra step uh, by becoming an activist? Um, I went, uh, be, well, at the end of my nursing part, um, a friend of mine, Clay Ruby, who's a criminal lawyer, um, was helping the Toronto Humane Society and asked if I would go down and do some public relations stuff, which I did, and was there for just a few years. Um, but during that time, um, I was vegetarian and very proud of it. And Gary Francione came to the Toronto Humane Society to do some work. He's an activist in the United States and a lawyer. And he said, you should be ashamed of yourself. You do not know what you're talking about. Unless you become totally vegan, you are not accountable to the animals that you claim to represent. And so that was the turning point for me. So I became vegan, <clears throat> I think in 88 maybe 89, I can't remember now, it's a long time ago, um, but uh, that was a turning point for me. And I realized that if we didn't do something about it, 
in a greater sense than just exposing all of the cruelty, which is important to do, um, but to try and find a real solution for it. Can we get legislation that changes certain things? Can we, you know, what is it that we can do to move the yardstick along to help people um, consider becoming vegetarian and vegan? And so that that was the journey. <clears throat> so, you know, the, my goal with this podcast is to um, convince vegans to do more. Uh, what would you say to those vegans who want to do more but don't know where to start? Well, I guess I would say you start in your own neighborhood. You have uh, municipal politicians, provincial politicians, um, or federal politicians, and those are people who are game changers in, in terms of legislation. So I would recommend that people set up a meeting um, with their MP, MPP, and their local uh, person and begin to explore um, the solution to some of these issues to see if the person is at all open to it. Um, and it's hard to do. I understand that. It's really um, intimidating to meet a politician and to be prepared to talk to that politician and and um, and learn to get the type of information that that politician wants and needs, um, you know, without without the cosmetic, when we won the cosmetic testing, that of course took a very, very long time, but we finally found a politician, Yves Duclos, who was the minister at the time, and he helped tremendously to push, push that legislation over the finish line. Now, it's kind of small uh, in many ways, because not many animals are tested in Canada, but the import ban into Canada has much greater impact. So, and I think the second thing I would recommend is that you have to understand that this is an incremental change. You're not going to find a politician who will snap his or her fingers and there's no more animal agriculture. So my second thing is do a bit of research, find out the areas where it's most likely to change. For example, we have bird flu. Bird flu can become a pandemic virus and begin to skip from animals to people. Um, I think we have very credible information on that. And I think approaching the politicians about the intensification of um, raising chickens, both as uh, meat birds and as egg, egg layers, um, that we can actually begin to make change there. Because if, if nothing else, we can appeal to the threat to humanity as opposed to the threat to the birds. Um, but if we can move it in a direction so that it protects the birds, that is, I think, a win in our, in my regard anyway. Yeah, let's be smart about it. And I yeah. want to plug an organization called, I think, Animal Justice Academy. And mm -hmm. I, I um, got in contact with them uh, uh, this summer and they helped me, you know, prepare to talk with my own MP and they were very helpful you know they addressed all of my fears and i had a great meeting with my mp it went great so yeah maybe get in contact with uh animal justice academy um what people uh don't realize is that most politicians are like the rest of us they just hold a different type of power um, most of them want to please and help their constituents depends on the magnitude of what you're asking. But for example, 
in Montreal before the horse carriages the, were banned, um, you know, working at the local level to make that happen, ultimately saved the lives of many horses that were used in that industry. So, um, you know, it's really important to pick something that you can win. Um, and it may take a long time. It took, I started working on the cosmetic issue in 1988. So it took that length of time to get it over the finish line and done, but we got it done and we'll get other things done. So um, you have to be patient, persistent, chipper, um, polite, um, and don't ask for too much so that you can build up a relationship with the politicians and make things happen. <clears throat> wow. Um, where do you find that commitment? How do you find that mental fortitude of continuing the work uh, year after year, decade after decade? I guess, I'm not sure. I just am um, kind of driven in that regard. Um, it really makes me very angry to see the kinds of activities that are done to animals, some of it entirely unnecessary and, and, and uh, achievable to turn around. For example, in Ontario, we have train and trialing compounds where they put 50 dogs or more onto a coyote and chase the coyote and sometimes the animal is torn apart. We have Parks Canada going in, in Sydney Island and BC going to shoot all the deer on the island by helicopter and with dogs on the ground. Um, these are issues that are imminently solvable. Um, and so when you see that kind of thing in complete inaction on the part of the government or actually denial of what's actually going on, it just makes me really angry. And so I just have to try and work on it to solve it. <clears throat> yeah, I share that anger. It's just something you cannot ignore. You have to do something about it. It doesn't go away. So I understand that mindset. What I would say to people, though, is use your anger and your depression and your fear and all the things you experience when you see what happens to animals, turn it into a positive thing. You don't you find something that you can do about it and take the work and do it step by step, regardless of how long it takes. And don't get discouraged. Um, you know, ultimately you're going to find a politician who says, yeah, this is extraordinarily awful and I'm going to do something about it. And, and then you can actually work with that person to make it happen. And so you just need to, we just need to take that energy, which can be very negative, and make it a positive energy for change. I love <clears throat> that advice. Um, so you are the leader of the Animal Protection Party of Canada. And I want to know how did this initiative start? How did we understand that we need um, an animal protection party um, and why is it important to have a, a political party devoted to the cause of animal rights? Well, it started because way back about 20 years um, in Canada, you could not start a small party many years ago. Um, you required um, 50 candidates to be able to run. That's, and you had to pay $1,000 per candidate to allow them to run. So the barrier was so high that most small parties couldn't make that happen. <clears throat> and, um, 
And then there became an issue with the Communist Party of Canada. They went all the way, they fought the issue all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that it was a barrier, in fact, to democracy and to electoral politics. And so the act was changed to allow one candidate uh, and a number of people who said that they belonged to the party to become a party. Um, so we went to our members and asked if they wanted to do that. Uh, they thankfully said yes. And so um, <clears throat> we were able to meet the threshold and start the party. But in my mind, um, the goal of a political party is to get into power. And I, I don't see the, the animal uh, party of Canada getting into power. So what is its usefulness? Well, first of all, um, the in countries where they have proportional representation, um, <clears throat> they have elected animal rights people, particularly in uh, the Netherlands with the Party for the Animals. They've elected well over 60 individuals uh, to the European Union, to the parliament, um, <clears throat> and all the way down to the water boards. And so they have, so then I'm asked, okay, so the assembly has got 300 people and you have five animal rights people elected to the assembly. How can you possibly make change? <clears throat> and what we're seeing in the Netherlands is you can make a lot of change. I mean, the government is considering phasing out far, uh, animal agriculture mm -hmm. um, in many respects. Um, and they're doing many, many different things uh, with regard to research animals and a whole number of things that never happened before. And so you got to ask yourself, does the presence of five people in the legislature make a difference? And the answer is quite clearly yes. Now, in Canada, you're absolutely right. Under the current system, um, <clears throat> we will not probably get elected. Uh, there are just too many barriers to it to actually achieve that. Um, it took the Green Party 30 years to get somebody elected, and they've only been able to get a few seats <clears throat> elected. So um, so our fight is to get proportional representation. And in fact, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there's a superior Supreme Court um, uh, challenge on fair voting. We've supported that initiative extensively <clears throat> and will attend it. Um, so... Uh, the, the way you make change isn't always just talking about animals. It's talking about process. It's talking about political action and political power and how you use it. <clears throat> Beyond that, we are there during elections when nobody else is talking about animal agriculture or any other animal issue for that matter. And so I think we make a difference in terms of... Um, in terms of getting people thinking at the <clears throat> at the federal level, we have um, a number of people who are running. We've had up to almost 20 candidates and um, those candidates are out there talking uh, the line about uh, about making a country a compassionate country. And that's why we talk about Animal Protection Party as a compassionate political entity. And just out of curiosity, if we had a proportionate um, system of democracy, how many candidates we would be able to uh, elect? Um, it would depend on how many people we got running. It would depend on the riding and the possibility in that riding. Depend on a whole um, 
a bunch of different uh, things that we, hurdles that we would have to look at and see if we could get over. But I do think that the way the votes are counted, <clears throat> it means that if we work really hard and get more votes than we normally do, um, that we have a very great possibility of um, of actually having possibly one person, possibly two people. And then we would be in the situation like the Animal Party for the Animals, where you can actually begin to mold the kind of debate that takes place in Parliament. It's, um, you know, one of my political uh, heartbreak is having supported uh, the government of Justin Trudeau, uh, the liberal government of Justin Trudeau. And one of the reasons I supported him in his first you know, campaign to become prime minister was because he promised uh, a proportionate uh, system of uh, you know, election. And then, of course, he just breaked his promise. And yeah, it's things like that that make people tired of politics. You know, they're um, little betrayals of their um, um, representatives. Um, just in that point, um, I've been I've been part of doing political work for a very very long time. Um, my ex was a city councillor, city of Toronto ran that campaign. Um, I have to say, you know, we need to cut politicians a little slack. It's a very hard job. You can imagine the number of people coming to them saying what they want that politician to do. And most of the time, it's going to be difficult to do that. And so we need to set aside that kind of feeling and begin to figure out um, how to approach these people, what it is they're looking for, um, and and whether they can help. Um, I do think it was a very big betrayal on the part of Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau um, to back down on the proportional representation. On the other hand, I would just say he's the one government. It's, he's banned cosmetic testing and the import. He is going to amend the testing regulations for a much broader range of products. And he's going to end the transport of live horses to Japan if that piece of legislation goes through. <clears throat> so more than any other government, actually, in the last few years, um, has actually brought in legislation that actually directly impacted animals. And so I find when we talk about that, most people say, ah, that was just one thing. That was easy. That was, you know, not many animals. I think what we have to do is to give the government a lot of credit for doing something that clearly was not that easy to do and that we begin to build on that as opposed to dismissing it or as opposed to saying it wasn't good enough or it wasn't whatever. <clears throat> it isn't that we should betray our values and our morals. We shouldn't do that. But we need to understand that we have to work with these people. And if we can do it in a productive way, like our coalition did with Minister Yves Duclos, um, the government came away with a very positive experience. They were putting their toe in the water. Were they going to get something to bite it off or were they going to you know, be able to uh, flourish as a result? And, and it was a fantastic experience, even for Minister Duclos. And so I think we can begin to change 
that dynamic with politicians by being supportive and helpful as opposed to angry and dismissive. I agree. I'll try to be more positive on my <laughs> outlook. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, the Netherlands. Uh, do you know how many countries out there have an animal rights party? And how is their fight going? Um, I don't remember the exact number, but we, I think Australia, it's uh, a lot of countries in Europe, Portugal, Spain, um, countries that you would think might be harder, like Spain has a bullfight, um, or that kind of thing. You think, mm, maybe not. Um, but these are people who have actually got elected in countries where there's proportional representation. And um, and they're, they're doing some great work. I would recommend anybody go to the website, Party for the Animals. They run a, um, <clears throat> a, a group of all the parties, uh, have representatives to this group of all the parties, um, animal rights parties, um, and, uh, and they do some fantastic work, tr fantastic training. And I would say for anybody who's listening to this podcast, anywhere in Canada, Um, if you want to become a candidate for a party that has a great platform, progressive in every sense of the word, um, call me, email me, and, uh, and we do a little interview. We have a form to fill out, and um, and we evaluate people in that regard. So uh, it would be great to have somebody. It's hard go. Okay, I won't I won't say otherwise. We don't have a lot of big support systems. We're not a big wealthy party. Um, so you're kind of out there on your own in the riding, um, and it's kind of intimidating. But I find that once people get into it, they actually enjoy it. <clears throat> and I'm I'm curious, apart from a passion for animal rights, um, what does it take to be a candidate for uh, the Animal Party of Canada, Animal Protection Party of Canada? Well, you have you have to be a, you have to be vegan. There's no point in putting a candidate up who isn't protected, it isn't, doesn't live the values of the party. So you have to be vegan. There's a number of other things. People who are rudely very outspoken, we tend to shy away from um, because we want, we want the politicians to have a good experience with the candidates that come to their meetings and who come to talk to them. And so, um, um, but mostly the criteria is, is set out in Elections Canada. If if we agree that you're a candidate, um, the basic thing that you have to do is you have to go and collect signatures of 100 people within your riding that say, okay, um, I would like this person to run in my riding. And um, so that that's really the only thing. Um, even that is really intimidating to people. But I would say to everybody who's considering this, it's really important not to talk, you talk to, you, we talk to people who believe what we believe, but it's really important to talk to people who have a different opinion and to be able to exercise that in a controlled way so you can have a reasonable conversation. It's one thing to think that what you're saying is terrific and believable and all that sort of stuff. But I can tell you when you get up in front of an audience of 300 people who might not like what you're saying, um, 
it's really hard. And, but it's really good if you can do it in a way that is um, not threatening, uh, not pointing fingers, but being inclusive in the discussion and having a respectful discussion. And I've had a number of all candidates meetings that have been really interesting uh, because most of the people in the audience were hostile <clears throat> in one of the writings that I ran in. But, um, but at the end of the day, when the whole thing ended, people came up to me and thanked me for being there, for putting an alternative point of view across, for being able to listen to what people were saying and then in, in turn listening to what I was saying. It's like that saying, um, you make peace with your enemies, not with your friends. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I would bet that becoming a candidate uh, would be such an educational experience in one's life. Uh, you know, it would bring a lot of growth in your personal and maybe even professional life. Well, it's easy to talk to friends. It's much less easy to talk to uh, people who don't agree with us. And I would argue that at the end of the day, we advocate for animals. At the end of the day, it isn't going to affect our the money that we bring in, the work that we do, the pensions that we have. And so if somebody disagrees, we can just go home, go to bed and get up and do the same thing the next day. What we're advocating is a shutdown of, of people's livelihood. And people tend to fight a lot harder to protect their livelihoods. So we need to reach out to those people who are um, troubled by what people are saying and see if we can begin a dialogue about how to move from an intensive animal agriculture industry to a plant-based um, industry and one that is environmentally friendly because just because you go to plant-based doesn't mean you're environmentally friendly if you're running an intensive plant-based agricultural system. So, um, so we need to move in a number of different directions. And I think uh, what we're looking at is um, figuring out how many, um, what is, what are the vegan, what does the vegan industry look like? What does the agricultural part of it look like? What does the processing part of it look like? Because we need to figure out um, what, what economic contribution that makes to Canada. With that in mind, then we can go and talk to governments because they have an economic interest um, in moving that forward. And I think that we could go and talk one-on-one, -on -one, farmer to farmer, um, <clears throat> with people who are, are doing vegan work um, to actually make change through the agriculture, the intensive animal agriculture. It's a big move, it's really hard to do. Um, but at the end of the day, I think uh, we, no, we need to figure out how to move that along. What's the division, the, the, um, the, the goal ahead? Have you ever thought of a future where, um, we're successful in our cause? It's a question I have asked other activists, you know, would you support a law banning completely animal exploitation and eating animals? Or, um, do you see a future where it's just mm -hmm. illegal to even, you know, purchase bacon or something like that um do you 
do you ever uh, think about the future like that? Absolutely. And a colleague of mine is um, exploring the idea about what the planet would look like if we let animals live. Uh, which which and he hasn't he hasn't finished it, but he's looking at that. I do think it's much better to do it slowly as opposed to having it imposed um, because you need to bring the, all the communities along um, and and get buy-in for why it's being done. Otherwise, you know, we did a we did a campaign and ended the spring bear hunt in Ontario um, and fourteen year and it was. Like it was a tumultuous time. The hunters went crazy. The outfitters went crazy. And 14 years later, it was overturned. So it's really, my experience is the wind was great, but if it doesn't last um, 14 years, the bears didn't get killed in the spring, but now they do again. So it's really important to figure out how to get buy-in um, from the whole community. So I think it's better to go slow um, and to bring people along, not to threaten them, but to make them inclusive in the whole situation in order to allow the changes that can be made to stick. Uh, bear hunting is uh, one of those things that uh, is just, you know, barbaric. I, I was visiting my parents who live in the north, and uh, here I was hiking in a national park and then I started talking with um, one of the employees and um, he, he told me about bear hunting and how there, were, there was a market of even Americans going every season to Canada in order to hunt bears. So let's get talking about the fights of your party and how to support those fights, even if it's not as a candidate. And let's start with bear hunting. What is that? Why is it happening and how can we stop it? Uh, well, bears are considered uh, trophy animals. Um, and the uh, provinces all across Canada have marketed it to Americans to come up for a trophy hunt. Um, and it's also, unlike any other hunt, is done in the both, both in the spring and in the fall. Um, mother cub, mother and cubs come out of their den in March um, and it starts mid-May. The cubs are tiny. She usually goes to the bait site alone, puts the cubs up the tree. Hunters say that they know that that's a female bear and won't shoot it, uh, shoot that animal. But in fact, many females are killed, many females with dependent cubs and rescue groups all across the country are faced with the notion of what, what what do we do with these orphan bears, um, bear cubs? Most of them just die because they can't defend themselves and they don't know what to eat. So um, so it and and in the fall, um, of course, that's when the bears are most active because they have to put on a huge amount of weight in order to go into hibernation because they lose a huge amount of weight when they come out um, in the spring when there isn't much food. So they bulk up in the fall. Um, and that's when they're hunted for two months, two and a half months. So in Ontario, because we had the spring bear hunt ended, they they extended the fall hunt into August. So mid-August to, I think, the end of November. It depends on where you're hunting. Um, but these animals are now being hunted 
for a much longer period of time um, than they were previously. So it, it's very, very troubling. In fact, in BC, the government there is looking at possibly lifting the ban on grizzly hunting, even though grizzly bears are at risk animals. Um, and um, so the at the end of the day, um, we, we won a bunch of stuff, um, but it didn't last. So uh, that's why we need to have the parties because that's where the legislation happens. Unfortunately for bear hunting, it's a provincial matter. So it would have to be at the provincial level. That's where our other, our other organization, Animal Alliance, will run campaigns parallel to the election um, to see if we can't stop some of these activities. <clears throat> and I mentioned about, you know, getting involved without being a candidate. Uh, what form does it take? You can become a donor. Um, for the party, the maximum you can give is $1,700 this year. Next, it goes up $25 each year. Um, most people don't have that kind of money. So, you know, a monthly donation of $10 would be wonderful. Um, and then if the person in the riding that they're living in wants to actually engage in an issue, just call, call me and I will actually walk you through the process and how to do it, show you how to do, you know, much of it is re related to, I do tons of ATIP requests and freedom of information requests because what politicians sometimes tell you isn't exactly what happens. So it's good to go armed with actual material. At, at the federal level, you can do ATIP requests and you don't have to pay for them. It's all free, um, except for a $5 deposit. Um, at the provincial level, that's not the case. So you might have to put out of pocket. Um, however, if you need some help in that regard, we can help you with that too. Amazing. And uh, giving is a simple way, you know, giving money is a simple way to make an impact. And your party is making an impact. So let's talk about a victory of yours, which is the ban on cosmetic testing. You said it started in the 80s. Uh, how did it start and how did it come to uh, a victory? And by the way, congratulations and thank you for this good work. Um, it started because I knew some people in the New Democratic Party in Ontario and um, talked to one of the persons there. They were in opposition um, and he agreed to put bring forward a private member's bill. In Then in 1990, uh, this is a long time ago, uh, Bob Ray and the NDP actually took power in Ontario for the first time ever. <clears throat> and Elmer Buchanan, who was uh, Ray's Minister of Agriculture, we met with him. He was wonderful. He decided that he was going to move and ban uh, cosmetic testing. And that would have been just in Ontario. And so we were right up to the very end. It was going to move forward. And then uh, Premier Ray stepped in and said, no way. And so that killed it immediately. Um, so we decided that uh, we would try at the national level because then it would impact all of Canada. And um, at the end of the day, we worked with a group of people. We had a coalition of people, um, including the industry. So, you know, a lot of people might 
not like that very much. But we went to various ministers at the time with this coalition of people who were also, including the industry, who were all supporting this ban. So at the end of the day, it was an easy victory for the uh, for the government um, with nobody really in opposition. And so uh, that's why it became a very positive experience. <clears throat> and why the opposition? I feel like this is an easy, you know, yes, let's ban uh, cosmetic testing. We don't need it. And it's actually truly horrible in the spectrum of, you know, suffering. This is something very, you know, acute. So why? Why do people hesitate on, on supporting, hesitated on supporting this ban? I think if you're a politician and the cosmetic industry comes to you and say, look, if you ban, if you ban us testing on animals, we cannot assure the safe delivery of the cosmetic um, because some of it needs um, uh, parabens, um, very, very difficult products that actually do need to be tested in some manner or other. Um, the difference I think today is that there has been an explosion of change in uh, non-animal alternatives, NAMs. Um, there's a recognition that animals are not the gold standard for most animal testing, not just cosmetics, uh, but education and training and testing and even biomedical research because each animal, even though they all look the same because they're genetically, you know, they're genetically a, a replica, um, they're all individuals. They all relax, re react to stress, housing, food, etc. They react differently to those changes. And so it makes a result from one mouse not to be predictive for another mouse or another rat or another dog. And so um, there's the, I just attended the World Congress on non-animal alternatives and there is an explosion of people looking at alternative ways of doing these kinds of tests, finding that it's less expensive, more accurate. Um, drug, the drug companies are the leaders in it because it's shocking, but 90 to 95% of the drugs that, that were of benefit to the animals are of no benefit to people, or in fact are problematic for people. And so, you know, the industry is pouring millions of dollars into dead end kind of research. So they're seriously looking for change. Um, <clears throat> the biggest numbers of animals in research is used in the biomedical field. And that's a much harder um, area to actually bring about change, but there is a lot of work being done. So I'm very hopeful that things are going to change fairly quickly over the next five or six years. With um, Dr. Jensfold, uh, who's uh, running the uh, Fauna Sanctuary here in Quebec, where I am, we we talked about experimentations on uh, monkeys and chimps. Uh, what is the situation right now concerning you know testing on um, on primates? Well, let me back up a little bit because in Canada we have very bad. Um, we have really no legislation that would protect animals in research laboratories. Um, the Canadian Council on Animal Care is the governing body. 
um, but it's voluntary. You can't A-tip it. And not all the companies, private companies don't have to belong. So in fact, we have no idea how many animals are being used in Canada, what they're being used for, what kind of invasive procedures are happening. If you look at the undercover work that was done by Last Chance for Animals for ITR, which is a testing laboratory in Quebec near Montreal, I think, um, you look at how those animals were treated, which was, was shocking. Uh, I mean, they were abusive beyond just the testing part of it. Um, so having, and that that organization is part of the CCAC and continue to hold their certificate of good animal practice regardless of what we saw in that undercover thing. So the problem is that we have very little leverage to know exactly what's going on and how it's and how things are being done. The only way uh, Ontario has an Animals for Research Act, which we can freedom of, we can do a freedom of information, and that has exposed a number of really problematic things in research laboratories with regard to animal welfare. And the other big thing, so if people want to learn about the Canadian Council on Animal Care, um, they can go to the Animal Alliance website. It has a whole report on the deficiencies of, uh, but the big, big thing that I think really exposed in a big way was our Department of National Defense uh, report called Defenseless um, about the use of 10-week-old pigs in um, trauma training. So they knock the pigs out and then they eviscerate them, irradiate them, chop off their legs, cut their guts out, all sorts of different things, and then try and uh, sew them back up and, and learn how to do trauma when there's absolutely alternatives to, to that process. So um, it just, it just exposes um, the problem. And the part, the reason why we got the Department of National Defense is anybody, any research facility that gets government funding has to be, um, can be a tit or, or foit. And um, at the end of the day, it just shows you that there is virtually no protection for animals in research laboratories. Animal care committees are supposed to be the drivers to care for the animals, to make sure that they're being treated properly and so on. The information that we got out of um, Ontario's Animals for Research Act is that these animals, um, most of the animal, not most, animal care committees can be dysfunctional, not meet uh, never go into the, the lab to look at the animals, um, approve greater numbers that you were used rather than lesser numbers, all sorts of different things that run contrary to what animal care committees are supposed to do. Um, and so it makes it really difficult um, to kind of get a handle on what's happening. Yeah, that's, that's the thing, you know, there might be laws forbidding certain unethical behaviors, but are they applied? <laughs> there are no laws that require ethical behavior. It is supposed to be that the core of, of protecting research animals is the Animal Care Committee. Okay, so the Department of National Defense has a number of different um, areas in which they use animals for testing and, and, uh, re and research. And yet there's only one Animal Care Committee to monitor that whole range of numbers of animals that um, 
that are used by the Department of National Defense. And that's one that we can figure out. We, we don't have information on any of the other testing labs. Um, we've done a ATIP request on the numbers of non-human primates that are being brought into the country. And um, there's this whole debate going on about the uh, short-tailed maca the macaques that are coming from Cambodia, whether they're from the wild, whether they're from the streets, whether they're from a breeding facility. And so we'll figure out whether that's, whether that's happening um, by the ATIP request that we will have ultimately fulfilled. But at the moment, I mean, any normal citizen, me included, you know, unless you really dig around, cannot find anything out about what happens to these animals. Wow. There's one, um, just briefly, there was mm -hmm. one um, investigation report from Ontario, from the Ontario, um, and they had a non-human primate, don't know what species because they didn't say it, they redacted all that. This non-human primate had um, contacted uh, MRSA, which is a, uh, you know, um, anyway, it's, it, uh, they didn't know what to do with this animal. So he was shut in a room in a tiny little cage and left because that MRSA is, is, can be passed on to other, uh, non-human primates. And, um, obviously the person who was doing the inspection said that that wasn't acceptable, but how long was that animal there like that? Where was the animal care committee? How could that possibly happen? Um, and so you realize that when things like this break down, that there, there's just nothing there that really um, demands them to do something right for that animal. <clears throat> well, I mean, you just have to visit the shelter and see how people who are supposed to be loving their animals uh, take care of them. And then you think, then if this is the level then what should I expect from an industry that only cares about profit? And also that's why we should advocate for giving the legal status of a person to, to animals. Because if they're not people, uh, according to the law, then they don't have uh, legal rights. Uh, yeah, they're considered objects. But um, if, if listeners want to know more about the plight of uh, non-human primates, they can uh, listen to my to episode one of the podcast with uh, Dr. Jensfold. Yeah, she 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 describes she she draws a, a good portrait of uh, the situation. I want to discuss something I consider one of the greatest threat to um, animal rights activism, and I'm talking about the ag gag laws. <clears throat> yeah, that that was the the reason why I approached my MP uh, this past summer. Um, so, what are those, and why are they so dangerous for uh, our cause? They're well, the 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 worst of the ag ag laws is Ontario. Okay, so they provide the farmer with the right to arrest somebody if the person's on the farm. Um, people get uh, fined for trying to document the condition of animals, even in the trucks that go by, so they're not on the farm. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, animal justice is going in as the main. Uh, we've acted as interveners in the process. And that court case takes place at the end of October, beginning of November. Um, and I think it's one of the most important court cases because 
animal, the Bill 156 actually, um, actually, you, you come away from it thinking that animal rights people are thugs and uh, do illegal activities. So what is, and, uh, sorry, Liz, what is that bill? Who uh, wrote that bill and who introduced that bill uh, to, to the Parliament? The Ontario government under Doug Ford. So Doug Ford is a member of the Progressive Conservative Party. They're elected with a majority government. It was passed in his first term um, <clears throat> because there were some people who went on to the farm to document uh, the current situation on whichever farm they chose. And there were a number of undercover things. Mercy for Animals went into Maple Lodge Farms. And um, I think it was the last chance for animals that went on to a goat farm. Um, so all these exposés were kind of rolling out, showing that farmers who say they love their animals, um, but none of us could measure that quite as love, mm. uh, given the condition that these animals were in. And it also, they exposed a number of dairy operations and pig operations in Alberta and BC. And so there is this rising fear, I guess, amongst the farming community that would actually impact their industry. And I think it, it could. Um, <clears throat> but the only way that they chose to deal with it was to shut down all observation of the condition of the animals, as opposed to saying, okay, we don't need this bill. We have a trespass bill. People trespass on properties. We can deal with that. Um, but we want to be more open and transparent uh, about the condition of these animals, and uh, but chose the other way. So um, I think this is the most regressive bill that I've read um, because it impacts every aspect of what animal rights people do, including documenting on the farm <clears throat> or just watching the trucks go by and documenting the animals. There's a couple of people that um, sit out in front of St. Helens Meats. Um, <clears throat> they handle a lot of spent dairy cows. So these animals are in pretty bad condition. Um, and so, um, but some of them have had huge fines from doing that. <clears throat> and luckily they've continued to go back, but <clears throat> you know, you risk your, you risk everything, your money, everything by doing it and thankfully some people do because short of not short of doing that you can't really show how the animals exist and um now it, they want to pass a similar bill but on a federal level and they say that it's for health reasons uh we don't want you to enter the um, slaughterhouses and buildings because uh you're going to contaminate the place so, yeah, what do you think about that? I think it's utter nonsense. Um, most of the time, people go in there and just sit and and document what's going on. Um, and um, if people are really worried about biosecurity, um, there isn't one vehicle that has gone into those plants where people have given the pigs water or taken pictures of the cows that have turned back because biosecurity um, was violated. And in fact, when you look in these trucks, they're so filthy, dirty from these poor animals and the stress that biosecurity is a joke. In fact, um, on the transfer of bird flu, um, there have been some look at that um, 
And the spread of bird flu came from cross-contamination from one vehicle entering a barn and cleaning it up, going to the next barn, entering that barn, cleaning it up, uh, and so on and so forth. So the transmission doesn't come from animal rights people. We're not even, we don't want to have anything to do with eating the animals. So, um, so it, it, you know, it's ridiculous, really. <clears throat> it's, um, it's ridiculous, but it's fascinating because it's like they, they take a threat, which is um, uh, viruses coming from uh, slaughterhouses and their industry, and they're um, making it look like it's the fault of animal rights activists, and we're, you know, risking public health. Uh, we're a threat to public health for everyone else when they're the cause for so many what we call uh, zoonotic uh, diseases. Um, <laughs> And this is something your position, your um, party uh, takes position against. And I think it is essential, I think, in politics, now that we have gone through COVID-19 and understood uh, what is at stake with the pandemic, I think every political party should think about uh, the risk of uh, uh, zoonotic uh, diseases. So... You're taking a position uh, on that issue. What is that position? Um, can you expand on that? On the on the issue of transference of zoonotic diseases, you mean? Yes, of the public health threat that the industry ah. uh, represents. I just read an article the other day which said we haven't learned anything from COVID nineteen from the I COVID agree. virus. Yes, that we are in denial about the risk on the bird flu side and you know talk about animal welfare issues with a with a barn they have forty thousand chickens in it and that's a small barn compared to the states um if there's an indication that there's bird flu there how do you euthanize humanely forty thousand chickens so we know it's not done humanely they have to shut the bar barn door turn off the uh, air supply and and heat up the barn and suffocate the birds, uh, 40,000, or they bury them in in foam uh, in the barn, depending on what barn is, what, what species of bird we're talking about. And so um, there's, there is this fear, but they don't want to do anything really about it. Um, and I think uh, we're sitting on very, very tenuous circumstances. I went to the city of Toronto. We went to the city of Toronto uh, a little while ago, asking them to shut down backyard chicken uh, operations. Uh, that was over a number, we started a number of years ago. A number of years ago, nobody thought there was a problem. You know, we're just being silly. Uh, this time it worked uh, because at least uh, the public health person said there is a real risk of transference of bird flu from the animals to people and the start of a pandemic, we shouldn't do this. So the city banned backyard chickens, but that is so small in comparison to the large agricultural package. And so far I see no indication that anybody is really doing anything real about it. Because 
Um, and by the way, I, I talked about this with Colin, who was a worker of this industry. He's now a, a microbiologist. He's working in the health uh, sector. And he was talking about it is only a question of time before um, this backyard chicken situation will get to, um, you know, disease transmission pandemic uh, uh, crisis. And many virologists have said, you know, it is only a question of time before the big one, before a big pandemic. And by exploiting animals, by doing this, by going through, you know, doing this animal exploitation thing, um, by supporting this industry, we're just um, playing the the odds. So yeah, uh, what can we do about it um, c- concretely? Um, d- do you have that's, any action? That's a, that's a real toughie. I think you you know you got to live your own values and and just by virtue of not buying into the industry at all. Um, I think if if people have the opportunity to go and document, I mean. You know, we have these spent dairy cows that are going into St. Helens. Some of them are in grim, grim, awful stuff. Um, and some of them are downers, which should not be transported. Um, and even complaints to the CFIA doesn't really rectify that situation. So um, I think the more we find that stuff, the more we expose it. Um, but I think the industry has been smart in that they have blamed um, wildlife for the spread of the of the bird flu. Um, the latest article that I saw research done on that is that it, it, it hasn't come from wild animals at all. Um, these birds are locked into a barn. And um, and so it's 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 clearly within the purview of the industry. And I think they're playing with our health, their health, and obviously the bird's health in a very reckless way. And what about the end of the antibiotic era? I guess there is more um, momentum around that. I've heard people Which, talking about the antibiotic, the end of the oh. anti, so the, you know, the superbugs and things like that. Right, um, they can't, yeah. Yeah, because I've been hearing people um, talking about this since, I don't know, 10 years ago, you know, so this is not as recent as um, the discussion on pandemics. Um, have we made some progress around that or are we just as blind as we were? I think we're running pretty blind. We have the federal government set up committee to look at um, these uh, anti, the resist antibiotic resistant uh, bugs. Um, but I don't think that they've really done anything about it. I mean, you can't keep animals in intensive conditions without using antibiotics, um, growth promotants, um, you know, milk enhancements, all those sort of things that A, uh, compromise the ability of the animal to fight off whatever disease there is. And then of course, um, it, the the um, antibiotic becomes resistant to uh, it becomes resistant to the antibiotic, and so I think there's I think they continue to play a very scary um, role in the whole issue of uh, pandemic. It's you know with COVID, it was easy to point your finger at another country um, and blame another 
different people from us uh, for actually passing on the, uh, the, but, but the large animal agriculture industry is going to be the feeder, I think, of another pandemic. I hope that's not true, but I think that is a good possibility. And I think we're going to see, think about it with these antibiotic resistant drugs. When you go into the hospital and you have an infection, you get these antibiotics. If those are no longer um, active, what does that mean? What does that mean? Even, even from a self-interested point of view, if you can't get an antibiotic that's going to deal with you uh, with having a bug, um, what does that mean for the population? And so, I mean, even from a self-motivated motivated point of view, I would suggest that people get busy and start doing something about it. I was told by a physician, we limit uh, prescribing antibiotics to people because we don't want to, um, you know, this antibiotic resistance uh, state in, in, in society. And I thought it was just such a funny joke because here we have like a millions of animals being injected with antibiotics daily and you're <laughs> limiting the prescription of antibiotics to humans this is crazy but well the yeah. you know the uh, vast majority i think i don't know the percentage but way up 80 90% of antibiotics produced are for agriculture animals it's got nothing to do with human beings and it's to allow them to raise them intensively i think um a government that would just ban the use of antibiotics as as a way to allow uh, intensive animal agriculture would begin to make that change. People have to make that change pretty quickly. So yes, it's a it's a threat, but it's also a challenge. And I hope that people who are listening feel like maybe this is for them. This is the area where they want to make a difference. This is calling for 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 their action. So Liz, did you want to add something before we end this conversation? Um, well, I would encourage anybody who has this burning desire, and that's, I think, how most of us feel, um, to go out there and do something to, or try to protect the animals that you're most interested in. Um, I would recommend that you go for it full tilt because we need many, many, many more people who are willing to look at the uh, political side of it and to figure out how best to, to do that. And I would recommend to people just to begin to immerse yourself in some of the politics before you even deal with the issues that you want. Go work in a campaign, go canvas, go try these various things. Um, sign up as a volunteer, for, for your MP or your MPP to help with various things. Listen to what people are saying, figure out how people move these issues forward, and then apply that learning to your own uh, desire to begin to make change for animals. And um, so a lot of it isn't actually documenting. You have to do that. But most of it is figuring out how you get that information to the politician who might actually move the thing forward. And that's a skill in itself. But I would argue it is the primary skill uh, that you need to actually make change. So I would recommend that people become political. Great, that's an invitation. 
So Liz, thank you so much for having been a guest and for having answered my questions. This was a pleasure. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you feel inspired by this conversation. Liz has truly challenged my cynicism toward politics. Whether you are Canadian or not, if you want to follow her footsteps and make a difference, make sure to visit the description below where I left some relevant links. Subscribe to the podcast now and don't miss out on next week's episode covering anonymous for the voiceless. You know, those activists wearing that mysterious mask. What is it all about? Tune in to find out. And as always, please tell your family and friends about the show and why you love it so much. Finally, you can always follow me on Instagram at Vegan Report Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Take care and see you soon.